everyone, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode number 29, and I am your host, Michael Bradley. This episode, we'll be looking at the ninth storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip. And later in the episode, I will present a spotlight on Superman artist Paul Cassidy. And boy, is it good to be recording again. I do want to apologize for missing yet another week, uh, two weeks ago, as you are hearing this. The episode with J. David Weeder, which you heard last week, was to come out then. However, more computer issues came up, uh, these, I believe, stemming from the last time that I had it in the shop. Uh, I had the episode with David recorded, but only had it about 99% edited before I had to take the computer back to the shop. And then when the shop dragged their feet in getting the repairs done, the result was another week missed. The most annoying part was, unlike the last time, the issue with the computer wasn't anything that needed fixed as soon as possible or inhibited, excuse me, inhibited my productivity. Um, I was working around part of the issue and the rest didn't really affect what I needed to do to do podcasting. So had I known it was going to take them two weeks to get around to fixing it, I would have just waited another day, you know, before I took it back in. But in any event, what's done is done. So again, many apologies. Um, hopefully you enjoyed the episode with David when you finally got to hear it. Hopefully from here on out, we'll be back on our weekly schedule. I really do hate missing weeks, and I'm trying to formulate a plan to make up the missed episodes. I'm not quite ready to announce anything yet. I'm still working out the kinks, but keep an eye on the Facebook page or an ear on future episodes for that announcement sometime down the road. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Bad Girl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Bad Girl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Batgirl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. The ninth storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip was 30 strips long, comprising strips 259 through 288 of the serial. So we're back to the shorter storyline this time, after the last supersized one. And actually, it's shorter than the last three. It ran from November 13th to December 16th, 1939. That puts it starting just a couple days before the likely release of Superman number 3, and ending about two weeks after the likely release of Action Comics number 20, both of which David and I looked at last episode. Also, just as a reminder, 
The Sunday version of the Superman newspaper strip began on November 5, 1939. So, this is the first complete storyline from the dailies to run concurrently with the Sunday strip. And I make note of that again because it... Well, because the Sunday strip is important, obviously, but also because it informs a sequence in this story that, that I'll get to later. So it was written by Jerry Siegel and illustrated by Joe Schuster and Dennis Neville. Our story was titled Underworld Politics in the Collected Editions, and it begins in the editorial office of the Daily Planet. And no, that wasn't a mistake with a dateline of November 13, 1939. Clark Kent officially goes to work for the Daily Planet in Metropolis. Another piece, perhaps the most iconic and well-known, aside from Superman, Clark Kent, and Lois Lane themselves, has made its way into the Superman mythology, at least in the newspaper strip. It will still be about three more months publishing time before it's brought into the comic books. Uh, whether the gap was due to a difference in the lead time between comic books and the newspaper strip or that it just took them a couple months to realize that that detail should be the same across the board, I don't know. I admit I don't know the lead time on the respective media, which throws off the timelines a bit when you're trying to narrow down first. And given the changes in both media over the last 70 years, it would be nearly impossible to track down a solid answer on that, I think. But regardless, it's here and it will definitely stick around. Eventually. The reason usually given for going from the Daily Star to the Daily Planet is that it was an editorially mandated change. Legend holds that some papers running the strip had competitors likewise named the Star or the Daily Star, and those papers didn't care too much for the fact that their rivals were getting seemingly free publicity in one of the most popular cartoon strips. So the Star became the planet, and the rest, as they say, is history. It seems they went out of their way to work the new name into the strips, too, referencing it in five separate strips over the course of the 30 that make up this story. No reason or acknowledgement is given in story for the change, of course. For readers just joining the strip, they would have no idea that it had ever been anything else. Given that, things get right down to business, as Clark's boss, who isn't named in this story, but I know from future ones that despite the change in the paper's name, the editor is still George Taylor, tells Clark to get down to the jail pronto because a big story is about to blow. When he arrives at the jail, an officer tells him that under District Attorney Lake's order, quote, all known criminals are being rounded up. Clark joins a press conference with the other reporters, and Lake explains, saying that during his campaign, he swore to clean up the town, and the arrests are his opening salvo. And I have to wonder on what grounds they're making all of these arrests. I mean, if, if these were wanted people with warrants against them, why were they allowed to, you know, remain free? But if they didn't have warrants against them, you know, if they're just the type, the type of folks that police know are dirty, but they just can't prove it, then how are they arresting them now? It's not really made clear in the story. But in any event, just then... Big Mike Hennessy shows up to see the DA, and Lake quickly shows the reporters the door. Hennessy balls out Lake for the arrests, but Lake stands firm about his actions. Outside, Clark and the other reporters talk amongst themselves about whether Lake will cave to Hennessy's pressure. Clark stands up for Lake, 
So one of the other reporters bets him $5 that Hennessy will get the upper hand. Having used his super hearing to know what's going on in the office, Clark gladly accepts the bet and collects shortly after when, sure enough, Lake literally tosses Hennessy out the door on his hind end. Hennessy collects his dignity while being razzed by the other reporters, and Clark sees Hennessy secretly signal to a rather tough-looking thug who then muscles past Clark. A quick scan of his x-ray vision reveals a gun in the thug's pocket, and Clark quickly makes an exit. And I like this bit. <laughs> Clark tells the uh, he tells two of the reporters that he's leaving, and the first says that he should stick around in case something else comes up. And the second, which is the one he just won the bet from, says, Let him go before I lose my shirt from him. So it's nice seeing Siegel injecting a bit of character into the background filler. So outside, Clark slips into an empty alley for a quick change to Superman, and then with a leap, rockets straight up into the air, apparently just leaving his clothes in the alley. They don't really say. We then pause for a hero identification. Leaping skyscrapers, racing trains, springing great heights and distances, lifting and smashing ponderous weights, possessing an impenetrable skin, Superman uses these amazing attributes to assist the oppressed and battle injustice. And we have a nice shot of Superman breaking chains with his chest. But not the same shot we've seen in a lot of the comics. This is a new piece of art. Back into the story with the next strip. In the DA's office, the tough that Clark saw with the gun enters Lake's office and introduces himself as Finger McGurk. Hey, McGurk, I'm losing my patience here! Lake recognizes him and starts to use the phone to call an officer. But McGurk pulls a gun and demands Lake release some of the prisoners he locked up or else. Lake stands his ground and McGurk is about to pull the trigger when a voice from behind him mocks the goon. Turning, McGurk sees Superman standing in the doorway. After some more belittling from our hero, a confused McGurk proclaims he doesn't really care who Superman is and demands that he line up next to Lake. Like all good gangster mooks, he then tells Lake and Superman to say their prayers. Lake tells McGurk he's crazy that a dozen reporters saw him enter the room, but McGurk laughs it off, saying he's got plans. Lake then asks McGurk why he just doesn't go ahead and shoot already, and McGurk replies that Superman, who is just standing there akimbo with a big grin, is kind of creeping him out. Superman uses the opportunity to mock McGurk one more time, and finally McGurk has had enough and fires a shot right at Lake. Superman leaps forward, reaching out his hand to block the bullet. As both Lake and McGurk stand surprised that Lake is unharmed, Superman hands the shocked McGurk his bullet back, suggesting that he try again. Superman then demands McGurk drop the gun and charges toward him. McGurk backpedals and, in panic, fires off five more shots, which Superman easily blocks with his hands. With the gun empty, the frantic McGurk throws his gun at the advancing Superman. And you can be sure he's not going to be the last idiot to try that stunt. Superman catches the gun and, giving McGurk a taste of his own medicine, throws the gun back at him, beating him in the head. Superman tells McGurk that Lake wants information about his relationship with Hennessy. McGurk refuses to talk, so, much to the delight of Lake, Superman responds by grabbing the crook, flipping him over, and proceeding to forcibly rip off his jacket and shirt. Superman then picks McGurk up by the nose and threatens to mount his head over the mantle before McGurk finally relents and agrees to talk. 
Outside the office, the waiting reporters have heard the gunshots and all the ruckus and think about either calling the cops or breaking in. But Lake opens the door and says there's no need to worry, but that no one is allowed to come in except for his secretary. When the secretary enters, McGurk explains that Hennessy was the criminal element's go-between with the law. For a cut of their take, whenever someone would get into trouble, Hennessy would smooth things over. With the confession in writing, Lake turns to thank Superman, but he finds that Superman has pulled a Batman and vanished without a word through an open window. Sometime later, Lois Lane reads Clark's story about Hennessy and fumes that Clark gets all of the scoops while she's stuck on the Lovelorn column. Resolving to do something about it, Lois barges into the editor's office and demands a chance at the real news. And I really, really like this bit because it shows Siegel following up on what he introduced in the fourth storyline from the dailies, which I covered back in episode 16, when Lois was demoted to the Lovelorn column and blamed Clark. And it's a good example of Lois being more than your average damsel in distress. One of the iconic characterizations of Lois throughout the years is that she's gutsy and intrepid and determined. And it's been there from the beginning, we just haven't seen a whole lot of it in stories to this point, so it's nice seeing that being worked in more. It also gives us a nice contrast. I speculated in episode 27 that it felt like Siegel was softening Lois's portrayal a bit, and that continues on here when Clark advises Lois not to do the interview, saying that Hennessy, quote, each reporter's alive, unquote, and Lois's response is to simply tell Clark that it sounds like he's worried she'll actually get a scoop over him and resolves all the more to get it. There's no bawling out, no screaming at Clark for being spineless or afraid. It remains to be seen how much of this sticks around as we keep moving forward, but again, this is a portrayal of Lois that is much more to my liking. So Lois heads out by taxi to see Hennessy, and Superman follows what the narration calls Far Overhead thinking he should stick close just in case. And we see a panel of Superman, what looks like he's running through mid-air. He's leaping, presumably, since he's not officially flying at this point, but again, it's hard to tell that many leaps are involved instead of just one where he's, you know, if you're just skimming through these or reading them for the first time. So when Lois arrives at Hennessy's, she's about to knock on the door when the door opens and a body comes flying out, landing face first on the pavement at Lois's feet. Lois recognizes the man as Bob Stern of the Morning Pictorial. Now, a few things about this. After introducing and subsequently shutting down the Morning Herald in Action Comics number 18, Siegel introduces yet another rival paper with the Morning Pictorial. Unlike the Herald, however, the Pictorial actually sticks around and will be mentioned again in future stories, both in here and in the comics, so keep an ear out. Also, some of you may be familiar with Bill Stern, who was a well-known sportscaster in the late 1930s and well into the 1940s. About six months prior to the story, Stern did commentary on the first televised sporting event ever, which was a baseball game between Princeton and Columbia University. Stern also called the first televised football game in September 1939 and was one of the first to do commentary on the first televised boxing matches. I have no idea if this Bob Stern was named in reference to Bill Stern, 
But even if not, I thought that was kind of a neat coincidence. So Stern tells Lois not to interview Hennessy and warns her that he's totally insane. But despite the warning, and despite the fact that she just watched this guy get literally thrown out the door, Lois goes in and wanders through Hennessy's house, completely uninvited. This, of course, causes Superman, who has been watching all of this from the roof, to comment that Lois has spunk. And I'll save you the soundbite since I've already used that gag. <laughs> anyway, in the house, Hennessy is chewing out a gangster by the name of Butch Morgan, saying he was a fool for coming when reporters were around. Hearing Lois coming down the hall, Hennessy tells Morgan to hide behind the curtain and then surprises Lois, who is just about to enter the room. Lois tells Hennessy that she's a reporter from the Daily Planet and wants an interview, but Hennessy just screams at her to get out. But Lois, seeing a pair of shoes sticking out from behind the curtain, and of course being too stubborn to take no for an answer, weasels her way into the room and pulls back the curtain to reveal Morgan. In a very bewildered Morgan, might I note, Lois tries to run, gleefully reveling in what a story it will make that Hennessy was affiliating with a no notorious gangster like Morgan. But before she can leave, Hennessy grabs her by the arm. Morgan asks what they're going to do with her, and Hennessy replies that he has plans. You know, plans? Outside, having used his X-ray vision, Superman is aware of Lois's plight and springs into action. After Hennessy and Morgan force Lois through a secret panel, Superman enters the room to find them gone. But using his sensitive nostrils, Superman is able to track the whereabouts of Lois and the crooks. And yes, I said sensitive nostrils. Siegel has been adding many things to Superman's arsenal of abilities lately, with super immunity and super breath in the last two Action Comics issues that David and I looked at last episode. And now we have Superman with super smelling. Admittedly, not one of Superman's more well-known powers, but definitely an ability. And it's interesting how quickly, how relatively quickly, all of these abilities have been added to Superman. Uh, the Golden Age Superman is often considered as having only, you know, somewhat limited speed, strength, and endurance. And yet here, though the character is, for all intents and purposes, only a year and a half old, we've seen more and more powers added to Superman's repertoire. And more are coming, as we mentioned last episode. And I think that really just speaks to Superman's immediate popularity and how people were clamoring for more and more fantastic feats from the Man of Steel. So having gone through the secret passage, Hennessy, Morgan, and Lois wind up in a cellar beneath the room where Superman is. Hennessy moves a large concrete slab to unveil a deep water-filled pit. Convenient for disposing of meddlers, eh? Very convenient, I'd say. Lois begs for the thugs to let her go, but Hennessy just tells her to shut up before dropping her into the pit and chaining her at the neck and wrists. Hennessy then flips a switch, causing the water in the pit to slowly rise. Having heard Lois's voice, Superman rips up the floorboard and leaps down to confront the crooks. With a slap, Superman easily takes out both Hennessy and Morgan, but the water is still rising around Lois. Superman snaps the chains, binding the girl reporter, and pulls Lois from the pit, narrowly saving her life. Thankfully, Lois is unharmed. But then Superman turns his attention to the would-be killers. After grabbing a pencil and paper from Hennessy's breast pocket, 
Superman lifts up both men and tosses them into the pit and chains them for a taste of their own medicine. And I love this exchange. After Superman throws them into the pit, Lois tells him not to do it because it's murder. And Hennessy replies, That's right, you can't do this. It's cold-blooded murder. And Morgan chimes in with, And besides, it's against the law. These criminals are not too swift on the uptake, are they? Thankfully, them admitting murder as a crime is exactly what Superman wanted to hear, and he demands that they sign a confession. The crooks refuse, so Superman turns to leave. But in facing their own mortality, they quickly have a change of heart and agree to confess everything. Superman writes down all the details of their various crimes, then has Lois sign it as a witness before pulling the men from the pit. The crooks complain about Superman's rough treatment, but as we've seen, Superman has no time for the comfort of criminals. He carries them back upstairs and ties them up to hold them while Lois calls the police. Superman then turns to go, but before he can make a heroic exit, Lois stops him, saying she wants to talk to him, and against his better judgment, Superman agrees but tells her to make it quick. Lois tells Superman that she's never had a chance to thank him for all the times that he saved her life. Which, now that I think about it, I should have been keeping account of. But, anyway. A very smiley Superman replies, Saving your life, charming lady, is a pleasure for which I desire no thanks. And there's too much to do for me to linger after my work is done. Lois then says, But who are you? Where do you come from? And where do you go? We then get a really awesome strip where, for what is really the first time, Superman spells out in his own words what he's all about. And I'm just going to read it for you. He says, Where do I come from? I don't know. But I do know that my super strength enables me to ease the course of justice. I have dedicated myself to helping the oppressed and seeing that truth and right triumph. Lois chimes in with, if only you could remain among us and inspire ordinary mortals to follow your ideals. And Superman stoically replies, I find I achieve best results by playing a lone hand, before putting the cherry on his cool Im hero image by leaping out the window into the sunset. And it's just a really great scene. I love that we have gotten to a Superman, or I should say that we're getting to a Superman, that is more open and friendlier, that, you know, that smiling, hands-on-hips hero that we know and love. The bare-knuckled, take-no-prisoner Superman is fun in doses, and he's never been a dark or brooding figure, but the lighter, smiling figure is my Superman. It's how I see the character. I like the Superman that is the public's hero and the champion, and we are definitely getting there. It isn't completely clear whether Lois is asking Superman these questions out of her own curiosity or in her role as a reporter. She doesn't write anything down, and there's no mention later that she had an article on Superman, so I'm guessing the interest is purely personal. Still, this scene just reminded me so much of the rooftop scene from Superman the Movie, where Margot Kidder's Lois Lane asks, Why are you here? And Chris Reeves' Superman replies with a completely straight face, I'm here to fight for truth, justice, and the American way. And here we have Superman being asked the same question, and he replies, I have dedicated myself to helping the oppressed and seeing that truth and right triumph. And that's the American way. 
That's as American way as you can get. He might not have used the words, but like I said back in episode number 22, the spirit of the American way has been there since day one. But I digress. I did make note that Superman says he doesn't know where he came from. In Action Comics number 15, which was the very first Superman of America page, it had that quote-unquote special message from Superman, and in that, it indicated that he did know. But, as I seem to remember indicating there, that was an ad and not a story, so it, you know, it's not really the same thing. Officially, Superman does not know that he is from Krypton, or how he happens to be able to throw cars and survive explosions. And I believe he won't learn those things in the comics or newspapers until after Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster are fired in the late 1940s. So, Superman leaves and thinks to himself that he will let Lois have the scoop on Hennessy so that she will get her reporter's job back. He then changes back to Clark in time for the police to arrive. Having already called in the story, Lois gives the police the crook's confession, then goes with the police to the station where she is congratulated for helping smash Hennessy's racket. Later, Clark and Lois are walking, and Lois is celebrating finally making it back to the front page. They come across a newsboy selling papers, so Lois buys a copy in order to see her name in the byline. However, Lois and Clark are shocked to find Lois' story on page 2, bumped off the front page by a headline, War in Europe. And with news of the war's outbreak, Lois and Clark jump into action, headed for the Daily Planet. And the next story picks up from there, but only has a brief mention of the war before launching Superman into another adventure, although that does eventually wind its way back around to deal with the war, so more on that when we get there. The mentions of the war, both here and at the beginning of the next strip, feel a bit squeezed in. Well, okay, they feel a lot squeezed in, actually. And to be honest, they probably were. The war really broke out in September, and this was December. Like I said, I don't know lead times, but a hasty rewrite within that time frame isn't all that unbelievable. So my guess is the last strip here was originally a bit different and then changed after the war's outbreak. Still, I liked this story quite a bit. It wasn't a deep story by any means, but it was really fun. I liked District Attorney Lake. You know, I liked seeing someone in law enforcement on Superman's side for once. And I wouldn't have minded at all if Lake had stuck around. It'll be a little bit before we get Inspector Henderson. Well, in fact, it'll be a long while before we get Inspector Henderson. But I don't think we ever see D.A. Lake again. It was nice seeing Superman have the criminal sign a confession and taking the extra step of having Lois serve as a witness. I'm not sure such a forced confession would hold up in court, but it would probably go a lot farther than just dropping the crooks off at the police, de- you know, the police department and then running off. It's interesting as well seeing once more Lois's new personality. She's friendly with Clark again in the story, no screaming or bawling him out for no reason, and even in that scene near the end with Superman, her interaction with him is much different too. She's not throwing herself at him or grabbing onto his neck and not letting go. She's just talking with him. I don't know what instigated the change in the way Siegel is writing Lois, but I really, really like it. And speaking of that scene, as I mentioned, this is the first 
complete storyline from the dailies to run concurrently with the Sunday strip. So that makes me wonder if that great exchange between Lois and Superman that I talked about earlier, as well as the one-panel break very early in the story where they pause to tell you who Superman is, wasn't written in as an introduction to the character for the benefit of new papers that were picking up the strip now that it was running seven days a week. Because if you came into this storyline not knowing who Superman was, this storyline tells you pretty much everything you need to know about Superman and what he's about. The Daily Strip has been running for over a year now. Well, nearly a year, I guess I should say. Yeah, nearly a year. And with the addition of the Sunday Strip and more and more papers picking up both, it just makes sense that they do a bit of explaining who Superman is. The art... Man, I don't know... I don't know what's going on with the Schuster shop at this point, but again, or still, the art just feels really inconsistent. Some of it is great, but some of it just isn't. Lois has like three different looks in the story. Some panels look half-finished and rushed. The strong stuff is really good, and I'm really digging Neville's art, but when it's bad, it's just, it's just not good. But, on the other hand, they had a lot going on at this point, too. They had a Superman story for Action Comics every month, plus the dailies and the Sundays. Schuster's eyesight was quickly deteriorating at this point, and he had dropped off all of the other strips except Superman, but the Schuster shop was still handling most of those. Radio Squad, Spy, Federal Men, and Slam Bradley. We're even going to see Siegel stop writing some of the non-Superman stories pretty soon here, so he can focus more on Superman. So it's just a lot. Uh, the art will get better, though. Uh, there's some really good stuff up ahead. Uh, and lucky for you, this is audio, so you, if you can't see the story, you don't even have to worry about it. On that note, though, if you do want to see this story, it was reprinted in the first volume of Dailies from Kitchen Sink Press, and like all of the newspaper stories covered to date, is available for free on DCComics.com, and I will link to that in the show notes. The Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970 when Mark Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com 
Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork, where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. Superman, a name known throughout the world, to all ages, races, creeds, and colors. But what about those behind the shield? The men and women who for over 75 years have given us a legend. These are their stories. Paul Henry Cassidy, often recognized as the first artist to assist Joe Schuster on Superman, was born in 1910 and raised in Cherry Valley, Illinois. Cassidy attended the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where he illustrated cartoons for the school newspaper, and soon graduated from the school with a bachelor's degree in applied arts and a master's degree in art education. After graduation, he later moved to Milwaukee and obtained a job as a graphic arts teacher at Milwaukee Vocational School, now known as Milwaukee Area Technical College. In 1938, in the midst of the Great Depression and looking to supplement his income, Cassidy answered a help-wanted advertisement looking for artists. Traveling to Cleveland, Ohio, Cassidy interviewed with Joe Schuster and Jerry Siegel and was offered the opportunity to begin working on artwork for Slam Bradley and Bart Regan Spy in Detective Comics, Federal Man in Adventure Comics, and Radio Squad in More Fun Comics. Cassidy also soon began working on artwork for Superman in Action Comics beginning as early as issue number 6. Initially, Cassidy was assigned to do inking, background, and detail work. However, as workload for the Schuster shop increased with the additions of the Daily Newspaper Strip, the Sunday Newspaper Strip, Superman's eponymous title, as well as other features, Cassidy began doing penciling, inking, and lettering, eventually moving on to doing entire stories by himself. Cassidy added a bolder, smoother line to Schuster's art. Superman's cape became more fluid with the folds and wrinkles not seen in Schuster's earliest work. Cassidy's differing sense of page layout and design also shone through in the later stories as Superman began taking on more dynamic and action-oriented poses. He also, it seems, brought long-standing changes to Superman's most famous symbol. Cassidy is widely credited as being the first to add the S-shield to Superman's cape. In addition, in later stories Cassidy illustrated on his own, Cassidy restored the five-sided shield, first seen in one panel from Action Comics number 4, and embellished the S by squashing the top of the letter against the top of the shield and adding the exaggerated serif on the end. Cassidy continued to work from his home in Milwaukee until 1939, 
when Schuster and Siegel asked him to move to Cleveland so that he could work full-time. Accepting the position at what has been said to be more than $60 per week, Cassidy moved to Cleveland, joining fellow artist Wayne Boring, as well as Schuster and Siegel, in a small office that formed the Schuster shop. In a 1994 interview, Cassidy remembered the busy atmosphere at the Schuster shop, saying at one point he was illustrating as many as 13 comic book pages a week, in addition to several daily strips. He also reflected on the artistic freedom he had at the shop, saying Siegel and Schuster were, quote, very easy to work with. They didn't interfere in any way with how we interpreted the script. The scripts would indicate what the action was, and of course what the conversation was, but there was not too much guidance. The picturization of the script was basically up to Wayne and me. We were never asked to do anything over or change it. Eventually joined by Leo Nowak, John Sakela, and others, Cassidy continued working at the shop in Cleveland until August 1940. At that point, he relocated back to Milwaukee in hopes of finding a job more sufficient in supporting his wife, Inez, and family. Though he continued working by mail to do art for the Schuster shop until 1942, Cassidy resumed a position at Milwaukee Area Technical College. Following this, Cassidy also became an artist for Grolier's Book of Knowledge in New York and World Book Encyclopedia in Chicago, eventually becoming art director and managing director for Childcraft Books in Chicago. With the exception of a six-week story for the Red Rider newspaper strip, a Hemisphere Patrol story for Holly, and under the pen name of Paul Graham, a Colonel Kilgore story for Centaur's Amazing Mystery Funnies number 20, Cassidy's work for the Schuster shop constituted the majority of his comics work. However, his work for the shop was no small feat. By his own accounting, his output included 630 comic book pages, 7 covers, 173 daily strips, and 8 Sunday strips, all over a period of only 5 years. Cassidy died of natural causes on May 15, 2005 in Milwaukee at the age of 94. Join David Ellis and Amy Morgan as they access 2099 Bitmap, a bi-weekly podcast exploring the world of Marvel 2099 through reviews and discussions. Download 2099 Bitmap at www.tfradio.net. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And we host a podcast called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Presented by the Superman homepage. On the show... Wait, wait, wait. What? This just isn't working out for me. It's not bombastic enough. We need something epic. Like what? Welcome to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, presented by the Superman homepage. I am Jeffrey Taylor. And I am Michael Bailey. From Crisis to Crisis chronicles the adventures of Superman. Wait, 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 wait. wait. I'm just not feeling this. 
I'm just wondering how there's a needle scratching sound when all of this is clearly digital. Look, all we need to say is that this is the, a trailer for a show called From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast presented by the home, Superman homepage. My name is Michael Bailey. I'm Jeffrey Taylor. And every week we give in-depth synopsis and reviews for just about every Superman book published between Man of Steel number one in 1986 and Adventures of Superman number 649 in 2006. We also talk about the related Superman media, what was happening in the rest of the world when these comics were published and what else was going on in the DC Universe. The show drops every Thursday-ish at the Superman homepage, which is located at www.supermanhomepage.com. From Crisis to Crisis is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, located at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. So join Jeffrey and I each week as we explore Superman during the post-crisis era, which includes Exile, Panic in the Sky, Doomsday, The Marriage, and Beyond. And write into the show at FromCrisisToCrisis at gmail.com and hear it read on the air, eventually, because we get behind on that sort of thing. Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Side effects from From Crisis to Crisis include loss of money from buying back issues, a desire to read 20-year-old comic books, nausea, drowsiness, pizza, blurred vision, upset stomach, a desire to kick puppies and kittens, and backache from lifting boxes of Superman comics. If the excitement of From Crisis to Crisis lasts more than four hours, seek immediate medical attention. I found an interesting anecdote while I was researching Paul Cassidy. And this comes from an L.A. Times article published after his death. And I'm just going to read it uh, verbatim. It's not very long. Over the years, Paul Cassidy had no idea that his uncredited contributions to Superman had been recognized by comic book fans. That changed about three years ago when his son Dick and granddaughter Katie visited him in Milwaukee. And Katie asked if he had ever run a Google search of his name and Superman on the Internet. When Katie searched, Dick Cassidy recalled Thursday, she turned up zillions of references. For his technologically unwired father, it was a revelation. When Katie showed him this on screen, I think it was astounding to him, recalled Dick Cassidy of Addison, Texas. He probably knew there were Superman movies, but had no idea of this kind of interest in comic books that seems to be going on. You know, we as fans, I think we a lot of times take for granted that creators know how much we enjoy the work they've done. We might assume that since these stories are still very much available, they know the impact they had, but that's not always the case, especially with the older creators. And even worse, most creators of work prior to the mid-70s don't see a dime in additional compensation, uh, no matter how much their work is reprinted. But that's another subject. This year at San Diego Comic-Con, for the first time in many years, there was no Golden Age panel. Mark Evanier, who organized the panel every year, made the decision based on the simple fact that there simply aren't enough Golden Age creators left to have a panel. And it's a sad reality, most creators from the Golden Age are gone now. Even creators from the Silver Age are dwindling. Uh, some are still with us, Murphy Anderson, Carmine Infantino, Sheldon Maldoff, Jerry Robinson, Ramona Fraden. But sadly, none of them are getting any younger. So, if you're at a convention, or you happen to have contact with a creator whose work you've enjoyed, and I don't just mean creators from the Golden and Silver Age, but any creator, take a minute and thank them for the enjoyment that, that it's given you. Shake their hand, 
and tell them how much you appreciate the work they did and how much it means to you. I can guarantee you that it will make their day. But that's it for this time. Next episode is an episode that I have been looking forward to as we will be looking at the first storyline from the Superman Sunday newspaper strip. I want to thank you all very much for joining me this episode. If you have questions, comments, or other feedback, please feel free to email me at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. I also invite you to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com where you will find show notes for this and all episodes. At the site, you will also find the RSS feed and the iTunes link. If you subscribe to the show via iTunes, please feel free to leave an iTunes review. At the site, you will also find the link to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed. Friend the show on either site, and you'll get updates whenever I post new episodes or have show-related news to share. The Thrilling Adventures of Superman is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at supermanpodcastnetwork.com, which is home to many excellent Superman podcasts and vidcasts. Unfortunately, Michael Kaiser and I have put Legends of the Batman on hiatus for the time being. However, the site and episodes are still up at batmanlegends.com and will remain so for the foreseeable future, so swing on over and check those out if you haven't. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the thrilling adventures of Superman, folks, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. Welcome to the Daily Planet.